Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss severe sepsis and septic shock, a major cause of mortality and morbidity in hospitalized patients around the world. Sepsis is a complex syndrome with an important impact on our critically ill patients and healthcare system. For over a decade, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has brought together representatives from various professional societies with the goal of reducing mortality and sepsis worldwide. Today, we will discuss the fourth update of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines for the management of severe sepsis and septic shock in adult patients. Our guest is Dr. Laura Evans. Dr. Evans is the Medical Director for Critical Care and a professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. She joined the steering committee of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign in 2012 and is the current Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines co-chair. She's also the lead author of the 2021 guidelines that we will be discussing today. In addition, Dr. Evans is an author in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign's COVID-19 guidelines and serves as the, on the NIH COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines panel. Laura, welcome to Critical Matters. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. And I think as an introduction, maybe we could start with just a general overview of the general approach to these 2021 Surviving Sepsis ca Campaign guidelines. Yeah. So. I mean, as you said in, in your opening remarks, you know, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been around for almost 20 years now. Um, and it started back in 2002 with kind of just a declaration of the intention to work together on an international basis to reduce mortality from sepsis and septic shock. And part of that process was the development of evidence-based guidelines. And so this is the fourth um, iteration or fourth revision of those guidelines. And it's on about an every four-year cycle now. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about why it takes so long, because you often get questions about, like, when are the new guidelines coming out, and how come they take so long to, to come out? So this one is actually about five years after the last one. The pandemic um, added a little bit of time to our revision cycle, as you can imagine, um, from that. But the I think the process of developing the guidelines has gotten more rigorous and more robust. and and even just I think, you know, a really clear structured process as we go through this. And, and that's probably not only applies to the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, but to guideline development um, on a larger scope from that. So the general approach of it is um, we start with co-chairs and co-vice chairs who are nominated by the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the Society of Critical Care Medicine, who are the two joint sponsoring societies. What that means is that financially, the guidelines effort is supported by ESICM and SCCM. So there's no industry funding for this. There's no external sources of funding. This is actually funded directly by the professional societies from that. Then as, as co-chairs and co-vice chairs, we start to assemble the panel of who, who will be participating in this guidelines process. And we have kind of two or three really sort of different categories uh, that we work with. And one is we invite representatives from a multitude of professional societies who are stakeholders in the process of sepsis care. And that's other intensive care societies, pulmonary professional societies, nursing, critical care societies, infectious disease, surgical societies, you name it, from across the world from that. So we end up with about 25 um, appointees from societies that have been invited to be participants in the process from that. We also then have at-large members that we can appoint uh, to the guidelines panel, and, and we use those um, spots to make sure that we have a diverse and hopefully more you know, pretty representative guidelines panel from that. So we want people from different professional backgrounds, right? We want nurses, we want uh, ph clinical pharmacists, we want intensivists, we want emergency medicine physicians, you name it. And we want people from around the world and from pertinently, I think, obviously people of different genders, but also people who represent different economic circumstances. So 
in this revision, we have more representation internationally and we have more representation from low and middle income countries than we had previously, which we think is really important um, in terms of moving the guidelines forward and making it a truly international um, document and international tool because the, clearly the global burden of sepsis is also very much weighted towards the low and middle income settings, much more so than high income settings, as big of a problem as it is here in the United States and in, in Western Europe from that. So that's kind of how we start with the panel. And then one, one piece that I really want to highlight that was, was a little bit different this time around is we also invited six um, public members or public representatives to the process this time. Previously, we had had a public or a lay person representative to the process, but it was really just one person uh, from that. And here we thought that that was not a sufficient input of patient and family perspectives. So this time we had six public representatives and they were either former ICU patients or former um, patients who had survived sepsis or family members of persons who had had sepsis or and survived or had sepsis and died. And they were a really critical um, piece of the guidelines panel in terms of helping contextualize everything that we were looking at and saying, but what does this matter to patients? How does this impact the patients at the end of the day? Because that's fundamentally why we're doing this. So I was really glad that we have such robust public representation on this guidelines panel. Um, so that's kind of how we start with the panel from that. Do you want me to go through kind of the, the process of how, how we kind of go through guidelines development or, or what's helpful to you next? Well, I think that first just want to mention and emphasize what you said about having patient representation or family representation, right? We, we keep talking about being patient-centered in what we do, yet we develop so many things in medicine and isolation of ultimately who we're trying to benefit. So I think that's a big plus. And I have seen an increase in committees and other guidelines of really trying to bring to the table those stakeholders that at the end of the day are the recipients of all our efforts. So I think that's to be applauded. And I think that maybe to, to move on, we can definitely, uh, we'll, we'll link all the, the guidelines and the executive summary in the show notes and people can, can go there for more details. But I do believe that perhaps an overview of the type of recommendations uh, we have strong versus weak, we have best practice and the strengths of evidence in terms of how that plays into the, the, the recommendations for clinicians would be valuable. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so we follow grade methodology, um, which is, you know, as I mentioned before, is very structured and rigorous um, in terms of how we formulate and define recommendations. And so there are different categories of recommendations, like you were just alluding to. There's strong recommendations, there's weak recommendations, and you can you can tell what's a strong recommendation or a weak recommendation just by how it's phrased within the text. So if it's a strong recommendation, we use the words we recommend followed by whatever intervention we're referencing there. If it's a weak recommendation, we use the phrase we suggest. So again, so that difference between we recommend says this is a strong recommendation, we suggest means that it's a weak recommendation. Each strength of recommendation is then followed by a rating of the quality of evidence. And that can be anywhere from high quality to very low quality of evidence. And so we use the grade methodology again to go through and we look at several different factors when we're rating the quality of the evidence behind a recommendation. And that may be, you know, are these well, start, do we start with well-designed randomized controlled trials? Do we start with observational studies? And those give us sort of a benchmark of where to start. And then evidence can be upgraded or downgraded based on several different factors. Is there a consistency of effect seen across multiple studies? Do the studies that are informing the recommendation directly apply to this patient population? Or are they extrapolated from sort of larger patient populations of severely ill or acutely ill patients? So we can use categories like indirectness and inconsistency to downgrade evidence or upgrade evidence if those factors are not present. We also obviously look at things like risk of bias in the ratings of these studies to help us grade the quality of evidence. So each recommendation will have a strength and then a quality of evidence statement around it, which represents sort of our certainty around that statement. And like you were saying, whether a recommendation is weak or strong has implications for how we think about implementation of that recommendation. And it may have implications for patients, 
it has implications for clinicians, and it probably has implications for policymakers as well. So if you think about a strong recommendation from a patient perspective, functionally what we're saying is most individuals or most patients would want the recommended treatment or intervention, that not only a small proportion probably would not want that. Whereas a weak recommendation, right, a suggestion, the sort of patient implication of that is, you know, that we think the majority of patients in that situation would want the suggested course of action or suggested intervention, but many probably would not. And so it really is a, an area for contextualization and obviously incorporation of patient values and preferences um, and other factors that might impact your decisions about whether to pursue that intervention. Similarly, from a clinician standpoint, a strong recommendation means we should do that most of the time, right? That, and we should have a reason, obviously, to deviate from doing that if we're going to not do it. Whereas a weak recommendation means probably different choices might be appropriate in different circumstances for different patients. So I kind of think of it sort of as a, almost as something to take under consideration, but really to apply within the clinical context as well. And then from a policy standpoint, most of the time we're thinking about strong recommendations as potentially things that can be adapted for um, policy level things or performance indicators, dashboards, things like that. And weaker recommendations or suggestions probably have sort of variable policy implications where if you're saying that this, this, we're not recommending this treatment as strongly, is it really something that you want to put on your local performance dashboard when you're saying that variability in implementation and context specific considerations might impact whether you think you should do that treatment or not. So again, this is all within the grade framework. There's really great resources out there. If any, if there's any like sort of burgeoning guidelines nerds out there, um, there's some really great tools if you go to the grade website um, and kind of look through this and there's a bunch of online trainings and things like that. If that's, But I think it's important to know the distinction between um, strong and weak recommendations because they're not, they're not all, they don't all carry the same weight and the same implications. And for those who, who really like numbers, would it be fair to say that a strong recommendation is maybe a 90% of patients would want it or 90% of clinicians or clinical situations would would require it and perhaps a week is 60%. Like you said, it's a majority, but there's still enough room that there might be some debate. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't haven't traditionally put numbers on it, but I think somewhere in that ballpark, yeah, where it's sort of, you're talking about a preponderance, right? In a strong recommendation versus you know, most. So, you know, if that's six, 90, 60, that probably sort of feels about right. Although traditionally we, have, we don't truly put numbers on it per se. Excellent. Laura, I wanted to ask you also about the best practice statements. Could you just give us a synthesis of what, what does the, the committee or the guidelines mean when they say this is a best practice statement? Yeah, thanks for that. So a best practice statement is um, essentially a strong recommendation um, that is an ungraded statement. And so it has to ha it has to meet kind of certain criteria. And the idea is it's, some people use the phrase of it's kind of like a mom and apple pie statement, right? Where it's, it's sort of where everybody says, this is a really strong recommendation, but conducting the study is really not feasible to do that. So one example I would say that, and it happens to be like, my personal favorite statement um, from the 2016 guidelines is this, that sepsis and septic shock are medical emergencies and treatment and resuscitation should begin immediately. So that's a best practice statement, right? It's a strong recommendation, but it's ungraded or ungradable, perhaps better said. So what it means is you can't really design the study to say, I'm going to randomize to treating sepsis like a medical emergency versus not um, from that, where we think the 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 benefits are you know overwhelming compared to the possible um, downsides of it. So there, again, in grade in grade methodology, there are distinct criteria that need to be applied to, in order to for something to constitute a best practice statement. If something can be you know clearly studied, and we just don't have the evidence base applying a best practice statement would not be appropriate in that setting. In that sense, we should actually grade it and say, we're going to issue a strong or weak recommendation and have that quality of evidence great um, statement behind it as well. And that might be low or very low at that time. So we do have best practice statements around it. And I, again, probably sort of come back to this phrasing of these are sort of just general, like good practice, 
mom and apple pie, but sometimes they need to be stated just to keep us grounded and contextualized from that. Um, so that's where we use best practice statements. We also introduced something um, in this revision of the guidelines, um, which is an in our practice statement, which obviously sounds a little bit similar to a best practice statement, but it sort of a, represents a statement of where the panel comes down in terms of current um, practice. And so it's not a graded recommendation. It's not you know, from um, a systematic review of the literature. But for example, when you look at the recommendation in the 2021 revision with that comes around the addition of vasopressin um, to norepinephrine, right, when you need a second agent vasopressor from that. And then we have an in our practice statement and in the remarks session that's there, which says basically provides additional guidance as to at what threshold of norepinephrine dosing do panel members tend to add vasopressin from that. And so it's just to provide a little bit more concrete, specific guidance but it's not a graded recommendation and is not um, something that we that um, you know, is based purely on what's out there in the literature. It really is a reflection of what the current practice is of the members of the guideline panel. Excellent. Before we dive into the, the actual recommendations or some of the clinical um, guideline um, recommendations, I just want to address um, the overall best use of the guidelines. We were talking before we started recording that obviously the Surviving Tipsis campaign and its guidelines have had a tremendous impact over almost 20 years in terms of really shaping and changing the way we talk about sepsis. But as a comprehensive and such a large body of work, it has obviously a lot of followers and adopters, but there's also a lot of detractors and people who have focused on aspects that may be out of control of the guidelines in terms of lack of evidence or disagree with certain recommendations from the past. But ultimately, I think that it's important for us to understand what the guidelines are and what they're not and how it's, do you see it's best utilized by our audience, which are usually clinicians at the bedside? Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question from that. And I think, you know, the SSC, you know, um, has been, I think, enormously successful um, overall in terms of you know, just raising the bar of conversations around sepsis and raising people's awareness to the importance of, you know, timely and appropriate sepsis care from that. And, you know, but the, it is a process in evolution also. And as you said, it has generated um, controversy throughout its history um, from that. And I think you know, I think there are there are different elements of the surviving sepsis campaign. And so one I think that's um, probably worth talking about directly is, you know, the relationship between guidelines and bundles from that. Because I think oftentimes we we kind of get them all um, sort of mixed up and conflated in our heads about that guidelines and bundles are kind of the same thing, and and that they're all um, for that. and they're related clearly, um, but the guidelines development process, and you know, so the so this whole multi-year process that we go through in terms of you know generate getting this big panel together, generating Kiko questions, doing the systematic reviews, generating and voting on recommendations, drafting these guidelines, the multiple levels of peer review. That's all the guideline development process from that, and that's actually a separate process from the you know, development and derivation of, of these bundles or implementation bundles from that. The idea is, I think, as you as you said during the interest, we, we ended up producing a guidelines document that has 93 recommendation statements in it, right? Which is a huge volume of work. And for that person at the bedside going, okay, what do I do with the, per, the patient in front of me? 93 recommendations is like fundamentally pretty impractical to go, oh yeah, I can, I can implement that tomorrow, right? So, the bundles are, you know, are developed through a different process than the guidelines, and they're meant to kind of, you know, sort of distill down some of the most essential elements into pieces that you can, you know, sort of readily apply at the bedside and track your performance around, right, from that. And then those bundles have led to you know, adoption by the National Quality Forum of the sepsis 0500 measure, which then was adopted and modified by CMS as SEP1. 
So while these processes are all related, they're not actually interchangeable. And I think that's where, quite honestly, I think that's where some of the controversy around the guidelines has developed is from um, sort of this, this even misconception that they're all sort of directly related, they're all the sort of direct same process from that. So to get back to your question of what should we, what should we do with these guidelines as clinicians, I think I would use them in a couple different ways. One is, yes, as a, as a sort of framing process to approach care of patients with sepsis and septic shock. You know, there are always reasons that you should potentially deviate from a clinical protocol. I think you know one of the um, arts of medicine is knowing when the protocol doesn't apply, right? So I think guidelines are a great sort of framing document reference of like what should I usually do. Um, and then we all have to obviously be aware of when we should, when the guidelines potentially don't apply and when I should do something different or deviate from them. I think the other piece around the guidelines that I often I think is overlooked is to serve as kind of a snapshot status report of where are the evidence gaps, where are the research gaps in terms of treating the clinical syndrome of sepsis from that. Things have changed and evolved over your career and over my career, right? We've seen how we approach sepsis vary quite a bit from that. And so I look at the guidelines and I look at this, the recommendation statements, I look at the quality of evidence, I look at the, rec the statements where, you know, despite asking the, the PICO question and doing the literature review and really, you know, putting 60 smart people in a room to hash it out, where we, we can't come up with a recommendation because the evidence just isn't there. So I think about it also as sort of a status report on where we are as a field and what we need to do in terms of a research agenda to help move the entire field and move patient care forward. So I kind of look at it as those two things, as a framework for how we approach patient care and then this sort of potential, I don't want to say a roadmap because it's not explicitly designed for that purpose, but an, a method to highlight um, a potential research agenda. Excellent. So let's uh, dive into some of the actual recommendations and some of the important clinical uh, items that we should be thinking about when we treat patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. And obviously, Laura, as we mentioned, this is a very comprehensive document with over 93 recommendations. We are going to uh, pick and choose some of the ones that uh, I think yeah, we'll are lose either... everybody if we try to yeah. do it all. Yeah, pick and choose some of the, the, the ones that are more subtle changes or that have a, maybe perhaps a greater impact on the immediate care. And, uh, and then again, obviously refer everybody to the guidelines themselves and their executive summary to get more information. So why don't we start with uh, screening initial resuscitation. And uh, one of the, uh, I would say one of the most discussed items is the initial fluid bolus and the famous 30 mLs per kg. Could you just tell us where we stand today in 2021 and what was the thought process behind that? Sure. Um, so that one really hasn't changed a great deal. When you know, when you read the phrasing of the recommendation, what we're saying is, and I'm quoting from the guidelines themselves right now, as it says, for patients with sepsis-induced hypoperfusion or septic shock, we suggest that at least 30 milliliters per kilogram of IV crystalloid be given within the first three hours of resuscitation. And in the 2021 revision, that's a weak recommendation based on low quality of evidence. So that is a downgrade in the strength of recommendation from the 2016 revision, where we had a strong recommendation based on low quality evidence. Now we have a suggestion or a weak recommendation based on low quality of evidence for 30 mils per liter of, of initial fluid bolus from that. And you know, to, to arrive at this, we looked at you know, what the available literature was um, out there from that from you know, the patient level meta-analysis of the large multi-center randomized controlled trials of process promise and arise um, to the observational work um, from a multitude of sources around implementation of sepsis bundles, including you know, the New York State um, statewide sepsis performance initiative that was published in the in that part of it published in the blue journal that showed an association of a reduction in mortality when um, patients who were hypotensive or had elevated lactates received um, 30 mils per kilo of fluid up front compared to those who did not. Um, so there's a lot, there's you know a good volume of observational data, and then we're looking at you know the sort of control arm mortality as well as the treatment arm mortality in the patient level meta-analysis from these large multi-center RCTs of early goal-directed therapy, all of which 
sort of had an average of about 30 mils per kilo of for fluid administered prior to um, randomization in those studies. So both the sort of idea that that 30 mils per kilo is common practice, as well as in multiple observational studies, you know, including of several thousand patients or you know, in the New York State database, up to 50,000 emergency department patients, um, is associated with a reduction in mortality. But there is no RCT data of randomizing patients to 30 mils per kilo compared to randomizing them to 15 mils per kilo or 21, whatever, you know, pick the number um, from that. So that's how we end up with low quality of evidence from that. And after a lot of, you know, discussion and banter back and forth amongst the, the guidelines panel, uh, we concluded that um, we should downgrade the strength of the recommendation from strong to weak um, from that. So that's where we landed with 30 mils per kilo. I think Clear, critically, what we want to, and another piece that I'd like to emphasize is that you know, we're taught this particular question is focused really just on that initial fluid resuscitation volume. We asked a different question about what to do with subsequent resuscitation, right? Liberal versus restrictive fluid strategies from that. And we didn't find any, in any of the literature that we looked at, we didn't find any convincing evidence of patient harm associated with the 30 mils per kilo upfront. Yeah. And, and I think another important aspect of the 30 mils per, ki per kilo is that it's really for patients who have hypoperfusion or septic shock. It doesn't mean that you give it to everybody who you think has an infection. And that has been, I think, a, a problem in clinical practice. And the other, um, point that is often um, brought up is what about patients with heart failure and, and renal failure? And again, my understanding, and maybe you can uh, dig a little bit deeper here, is that the literature doesn't really support that we're harming patients when, they're, when they need the fluids, whether they have a diagnosis of heart failure or renal failure. But ultimately, like you said, it's a guideline and you have to evaluate each patient individually. Yeah, I think, but all of those things are true. And, and I, you know, strongly support that if I'm if you're assessing a patient at the bedside and, and you think that they are in active decompensated heart failure and acutely volume overloaded, you should use your clinical judgment and then document it, right? Um, I think you know we we're all trained professionals and we should use our, our professional training to you know make our best judgments at the bedside as well. Um, but yeah, when you look at these observational studies that include patients with a history of heart failure, a history of chronic kidney disease, there's certainly no suggestion um, that patients with heart failure or kidney disease respond differently or respond adversely to that initial 30 mils per kilo bolus from that. And, and we saw that in the New York State data. And then I think the other study that's really nicely done around that, it comes out of the, from Vinnie Liu's group from Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, where they looked at actually, you know, a little bit of an expanded indication for fluids because they, they implemented a sepsis bundle that included the 30 mils per kilo fluid resuscitation for patients who were not hypotensive and had sort of intermediate lactate values. So this was a lactates two to four uh, millimoles per liter um, and were not hypotensive. And they implemented a sepsis bundle that included fluid resuscitation for those patients. So even a little bit expanded from the guidelines recommendation in terms of the population receiving fluids there. And when they looked at the, the signal around implementation of this bundle in patients with heart failure and kidney failure, they actually had the largest signal of, of mortality benefit from implementation of this bundle compared to all comers. So, um, certainly, we don't see in the existing literature, we don't see suggestions of harm measured on any kind of population basis or, you know, that we can see um, reported in these observational studies. Does that mean definitionally that, you know, nobody, none of us have ever fluid overloaded a patient by giving the 30 mils per kilo? Of course not, right? I mean, that's that's the, the difference between the guidelines and, you know, really making that astute clinical judgment at the bedside from that. But Again, I would kind of use it framing as like, that's my starting point. And I'm gonna look if there's a reason why I think it's acutely contraindicated, but it's gonna be kind of my my go-to maneuver for that for about patients who are hypotensive or hypoperfused as evidenced by an elevated lactate, unless there's some reason that I think I'm gonna actually, you know, push them into acute decompensated heart failure, for example. Perfect. And in terms of guidance of that initial resuscitation. Could you just make some comments uh, on specifically on 
the recommendations on dynamic versus static uh, parameters, lactate levels, and the new recommendation in capillary refill. Yeah, so the capillary refill one I think is is a is definitely a new one. I think it's it's one I particularly like because I think again we're talking about trying to um, provide useful guidance that can be applicable in a multitude of settings, right? And so for those you know we all work in different settings. Some of us work in you know really well resourced environments. Some of us work in less well resourced environments. Some people's you know, emergency departments are particularly busy and overwhelmed, although maybe in, in the days of COVID, that's more, you know, more the norm rather than the exception. Um, and you know, we all have different access to, um, whether it be different commercial equipment to help us you know, measure fluid responsiveness or not any access to it as well. So I really like the concept of you know, capillary refill as a readily available, um, non-technology-based tool to help us assess um, our adequacy of resuscitation for that. And that, so that's our recommendation around the use of capillary refill as an adjunct to other markers of, of um, assessing our resuscitations is, is really you know, based on the Andromeda shock trial, um, which showed you know, obviously non-inferiority of the cap refill approach compared to using lactate um, clearance from that. So, I think that I'm really happy that that got included in there because I think we often kind of anchor on technology fixes and uh, to things and lose that kind of instinct to go back to the bedside and say, okay, how does my patient actually look? Um, and what are they what are they actually doing? And so I think cap refill is a nice tool for that. Um, you know, we have a suggestion that's pretty much unchanged from 2016 about using dynamic rather than static parameters to help guide resuscitation, particularly after that initial 30 mils per kilo from that. One question that often gets answered is, okay, well, what do you mean, like which dynamic measure should I use um, from that? And you know, our assessment of the state of the evidence at this point was that there really isn't a sufficiently strong evidence base to recommend one dynamic measure over a different dynamic measure um, to help with that assessment of fluid responsiveness after initial resuscitation. So, you know, my my advice would be use what you have, um, or you know, use what you're comfortable with and have readily available to you to help you guide that um, using your dynamic measures of um, whether it be you know passive leg raise and pulse pressure variation or echo for those who are you know. Um, skilled in its use and applicability at the bedside from that. But I think the key take home point was in you know, just these static measures are probably inferior to using dynamic measures, but we don't know exactly what dynamic measure outperforms other dynamic measures at this point in time. And any comments on lactate? Oh yeah, lactate. Um, so I think lactate was an interesting one because there's multiple um, you know, potential uses of lactate and sepsis, right? There's um, lactate as a, as a prognostic marker, right? Where elevated lactates are associated with worse outcomes for patients. There's, you know, I think good, reasonably good data about lactate clearance as a target for resuscitation from that. And then we now have obviously the revised 2016 sepsis definitions that include an elevated lactate within the definition of septic shock. Um, from that, so the um, I, you know, I do think that there's a role for you know using lactate clearance as a marker of my resuscitation and using it as one factor amongst many um, to help me guide resuscitation for patients with sepsis, septic shock. From that, the um, you know in terms of the diagnostic piece for um, you know, is the septic shock present by the 2016 definition or not? You kind of have to measure the lactate in order to answer that. Um, that, you know, the, the I know we're, we're off topic with the definitions here. That, for me, raised an issue with the definition in the first place because in many parts of the world where, you know, lactate measurement may not be uh, readily available, does that mean I can either, no longer even make a diagnosis of septic shock if I can't measure a lactate? Um, but that's obviously not be not the topic of discussion today, but I, I think it's an interesting um, consideration overall. Let's move on and talk about infection. And Laura, I think that uh, initiation of antibiotics obviously is a huge topic of discussion. And I wanna believe that most people would agree that 
if you're super sick, earlier is better. But in terms of how to define that, I think has caused some consternation and some debate. And this is also something that I think the new guidelines have tried to capture based on the available evidence in a, in a different way. And that's expressed in that figure one in the manuscript, which I recommend everybody take a look. But maybe you could tell us a little bit of where we stand there today. Yeah. So the, you know, I, I, I think you're right. And I hope, you, I hope you're right in the sense that I think for patients with sepsis and septic shock, I think there's probably fairly little debate at this moment in time that timely initiation of antimicrobial therapy is a major driver of patient outcome. And where we have ended up, I think, having more vigorous debate over the last several years is in the population that's you know, not clearly septic. Um, and how does that relate to you know, our concerns about antimicrobial stewardship and driving antimicrobial resistance and overuse of antimicrobials, all of which are legitimate concerns, right? And so um, where we approached it with this, this guideline is in, I think, figure one, as you said, sort of, I think, hopefully, um, uh, the community will, will tell us, right? But hopefully provides um, a useful tool for the adaptation of that. And I think thinking about it as, I think probably the way we fundamentally approach patients at the bedside, which is both looking at how sick my patient is. So in this, in that sense, we're categorizing recommendations as in shock or not in shock. And then how likely, how likely do I believe an infection is? So I kind of think about those as like an X and a Y axis, an X axis and a Y axis. So how sick is my patient and how likely is infection? And so if I'm dealing with a patient that's sicker, i.e. a patient in shock, I need less certainty on the infection axis to feel like I should give antimicrobial therapy up front because my window of error, if you know, my margin of error or window of missed opportunity, if it turns out that that patient has infection and they're already in shock, is so small. So then, then I sort of get that first dose in you know, let the dust settle, see what's going on, and then hope, you know, if they're not infected, you know, discontinue the antibiotics. So more sick, you know, likely infection to even less certainty of infection, then I think we're targeting getting those antibiotics in immediately, ideally within an hour. Whereas if you're in the less sick kind of um, axis, right, where you're not in shock and you have less certainty that an infection is causing whatever the acute illness presentation is, then perhaps you have a little bit more time to do a focused evaluation to you know, get, those, get some initial labs back, you know, get another x-ray, get a UA, and move yourself either further along towards more certain that there's an infection or, or for less certain that there's infection. So using that time then for this focused evaluation to determine whether an infection is present or not. And for that population, so not in shock and less certain for of infection, we're saying, you know, really do this focused evaluation. And then if you think there's infection, get those antimicrobials started within three hours. So it's still the one hour, three hour framework, but it now sort of explicitly incorporates both of these concepts of how sick is my patient and how certain am I is, is there that there's an infection present. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I think also it, it's important to, to emphasize that this is another area that is hard to study with randomized controlled trials and that the data that we have uh, is mixed. Uh, it's retrospective. But again, it points to, the, to, to what you're saying, that in patients who are sicker, it's easier to show that there's a time-sensitive component and that really delays an antibiotic, appropriate antibiotics have, have an impact on mortality. And perhaps in patients that are not as sick, it's a little bit harder to show that. So I, I do believe that having that clinical distinction between how sick is my patient first and how certain am I that this is an infection second should also guide us and try to help us make this better. And the way I always phrase it to, to my colleagues is, if I am lying in an ED with septic shock, I would rather have appropriate antibiotics sooner rather than later. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So moving on to, to hemodynamics, um, choice of fluid, this is something that we've been debating for some time now, and uh, has has resulted in some RCTs, but more importantly for our discussion today, it also has resulted in maybe a change in the recommendation. Yeah, uh, no, uh, uh, we'll talk about it, although unfortunately the, the our literature review date um, for the guidelines closed before the release of one of the newest studies, the BASICS trial um, coming out of Brazil. So we don't, the, the recommendation actually does not reflect the data from BASICS um, from that. So um, we do issue a weak recommendation based on low quality of evidence um, favoring the use or suggesting the use of balanced crystalloids instead of normal saline for resuscitation um, for that. And we looked at a multitude of outcomes um, to try to arrive at that recommendation, including um, you know, mortality, new onset kidney dysfunction, that, and found some, you know, some signal that of um, favorable outcomes for balanced crystalloids compared to normal salines. The BASICS trial, um, most people will know, did not show a difference between the use of normal saline and balanced crystalloids. So, you know, when it's time to relook at this recommendation as well, you know, that'll get included and it may, may or may not influence the directionality of this um, current suggestion for balanced crystalloids compared to normal saline for resuscitation um, from that. So, you know, I think it does raise this point of, you know, at some point we have to cut off, there's always new data coming out, right? And at some point we have to sort of just cut off the additional data going into the guidelines and then there's, they don't come out the very next day, right? They still have to go through the writing process and the peer review process and the publication process. So there's a little bit of a built-in delay um, with that. And so, you know, there's there's work going on to think about how do we, you know, update the guidelines on an interval basis if we need to, if there's a really a practice changing type of recommendation or practice changing study that would you know, say clearly what our recommendation is wrong. But for now, we do have a weak suggestion or weak recommendation or suggestion for balanced crystallizing over normal saline for resuscitation. And it's very interesting in terms of watching the evolution because in the first iteration of the guidelines, the discussion really was around albumin versus crystalloids, right? Colloids versus mm -hmm. crystalloids. And uh, we've learned a lot, but at the end, I mean, maybe what we do at the bedside hasn't changed that much, but there's also recommendations for, for albumin. Can you just comment on those briefly, Laurel? Yeah, the albumin one is always a problematic recommendation, though I, I think you're right in the, that the, the amount of discussion has really kind of tamped down over time. Is that I think we're just using less colloid for resuscitation than we used to. That, you know, we're clearly recommending crystalloid over colloid now. But defining the population for when you might use albumin, I think, is still a very tricky one um, from that. And so we still have a, a suggestion for albumin who receive, for patients who receive large volumes of crystalloids over crystalloids alone. But where we always get kind of bogged down in the discussion on the guidelines panel is what, what actually constitutes a large volume, right? And does that mean the same thing to you as it does to me, to you know, somebody else um, from that? And so, but the, where we are with the literature base, you know, really precludes our ability to say at what volume is that true, right? At what volume should we or set that threshold and define it within the guidelines from that? So unfortunately, I think, you know, we end up with a little bit of a vague statement um, about suggesting the use of albumin um, in those who receive large volumes of crystalloids over crystalloids alone. And so it's sort of left to you as a, a clinician at the bedside to you know, use that, use your clinical judgment to say, I think this is in, you know, a large enough um, volume of crystalloid that I'm going to add some albumin from that. And, you know, it'd be, I think this would be a place where it'd be very interesting to do an in our practice statement and see how much variability there is around how, what threshold that is for different people. Excellent. The other cornerstone of hemodynamic support and septic shock, obviously, is the use of vasopressors. And I wanted to ask you, Laura, specifically, if you could comment on choice of vasopressor and the administration of vasopressors in a timely manner, which sometimes might require the use of a peripheral line. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, continue to recommend using norepinephrine as the first line agent um, from that. And we did comparisons with multiple agents there, dopamine, vasopressin, surlipressin, epinephrine, um, and angiotensin II were the agents we con compared um, norepinephrine to. 
that. So there's actually different quality of evidence ratings for each um, comparison agent from that, but we have a strong recommendation for norepinephrine as the first line agent over other vasopressors. Um, you know, in a nod to you know, the inclusion, particularly of um, panelists uh, from low and middle income countries, we also noted that you know, norepinephrine is not available globally in every setting from that. It's not actually on the WHO list of essential medicines from that. So in some areas of the world, you can't actually use norepinephrine because it's not available from that. Um, we then go on to suggest um, vasopressin um, instead of just escalating the dose of norepinephrine for septic shock um, where you're not able to achieve the adequate map or the map you're targeting from that. And that's a weak recommendation, a suggestion based on moderate quality of evidence. Um, and this is where we include this, what, you know, this in our practice statement about where do the panelists fall on what that threshold is to, con con um, to consider adding vasopressin. So what the, the range from the panelists reporting what their practice was in terms of when to start vasopressin um, is usually when the dose of norepinephrine was in the range of 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. So kind of moderate to high dose norepinephrine was the threshold that most panelists would have used to add vasopressin as this um, preferential second line agent from that. Um, we then go on to say, if despite norepi and vasopressin, you're, you know, and I think this probably should also trigger, a, you know, a discussion of what are the goals and, and you know, is um, continued escalation of therapy um, within the patient's values and preferences. But for septic shock and inadequate maps, despite norepi and vasopressin, we suggest adding epinephrine from that. So that's kind of the vasopressor or cascade as we defined it in this one. The big difference, I think, rather than the, the choice of agents and selections, although last time we had sort of a add vasopressin or epinephrine statement, and now we're, we're favoring vasopressin um, as a second line agent. The, the big distinction, I think, is that we suggest starting vasopressors peripherally um, rather than delaying until a central line can be secured. Um, and I think that's kind of a, a practice change. It is a suggestion. It's a weak recommendation. But I think it's potentially practice changing um, compared to how we used to approach vasopressor initiation in patients with septic shock, which was to get the line in first, right, and then start the vasopressors. Whereas now we're saying, you know what, don't wait, work on getting the line, but don't wait, start the vasopressors and get, then get the line in. And so you don't have hopefully these prolonged periods of hypotension while you're waiting for central access which we, I think we all know from our practices can take a variable amount of times, particularly in, you know, and probably depends a good bit on our, our different practice settings. And in terms of uh, the recommendation, obviously uh, there's growing enthusiasm and some evidence for the ability to safely give vasopressors through peripheral lines, but the location of that line is probably important where you're using it yeah, just for a short period of time or not. And it has to be um, distal to the antecubital, right? Uh, proximal to the antecubital. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, thank you for highlighting that because that's actually a typo in the executive summary. Um, so there's 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 the two publications, right? There's the the full guidelines document. And there's an executive summary, and there's a a typo or you know transposition error that we made in the executive summary where that says that it's distal to the antecubital fossa, but it it should be in a vein, a big vein proximal to proximal. the antecubital. It's still hard, even when I'm looking at my antecubital fossa, I still get it wrong. <laughs> but the idea <laughs> that you want to use yeah, a I'm larger sure, vein. That's, that's exactly how we made that error, right? You're like, distal proximal. It's not, that's not how our brains work, right? I'm like, so I just got to remember, put it in a big vein. <laughs> yeah, closer to the heart, proximal to the yeah. heart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, let's talk about additional therapies and uh, another topic that, it seems to be like a pendulum that goes back and forth in critical care. And even in COVID-19, we've seen that, which is the use of corticosteroids. So specifically, the recommendation for corticosteroids for shock. Yeah. So corticosteroids are funny, right? Like, they, well, we're never going to stop wanting to give corticosteroids for critical illness. <laughs> like, because we've been studying it for what? How long? 25 years, 30 years, 40 years of corticosteroid study for this? Um, from it. So I'm actually going to flip through the guidelines here and, and pull up the actual recommendations so I don't misspeak uh, around it. So forgive me for one minute while I'm scrolling through the, this very lengthy document. 
on my computer as, as we're talking um, from it. But um, we did, of course, again, ask the question of, of should we use corticosteroids um, for the management of patients with septic shock um, from that. And we issued, hang on, you might want to pause this in the actual um, recording. There we are. Um, we issued a weak recommendation based on moderate quality of evidence that for adults with septic shock and an ongoing requirement for vasopressor therapy, we suggest using IV corticosteroids. And we define that as a typical dose at a total of 200 milligrams a day, given either as 50 milligrams every six hours or as a continuous effusion. And I think that the continuous effusion is a little bit more of a common in a European approach than in a North American approach from that. And then the question, of course, is what, what threshold, um, you know, should we consider for a requirement for vasopressor therapy? Should you, you know, initiate steroids when somebody's just on a, like a little bit of a, a whiff of norepinephrine still, or just should they be on a higher dose? And so the suggestion from the guidelines panel, again, not a formal recommendation, but the suggestion was that this could be considered at a dose of norepinephrine greater than 0.25 mics per kilo per minute. Um, for at least four hours. So again, sort of in that moderate to high dose norepinephrine use um, to add corticosteroids at 50 milligrams Q6 or 200 milligrams a day uh, given as a continuous infusion. And so that's a weak recommendation based on moderate quality of evidence um, from that. And that's actually pretty similar to our prior recommendation. The big difference with this one is that we added the, the remark around what the panel would consider as um, kind of the threshold to consider adding corticosteroids. And I think it also reflects to what I, I think have been able to, to view as many people's practice, right? I think that uh, it, usually it, it reflects what's going on. And like you said, it has a moderate, moderate level of evidence because it's been studied a lot, but what we've never been able to show is the improvement in mortality, but the uh, the quicker recovery from shock and other outcomes are there. So I think it, it makes sense. That's exactly it. So we're really using shock resolution as the endpoint there. That was an interesting piece around, um, you know, where where the public members contributed to the to the panel was also sort of saying like, what outcomes really matter to patients? Um, and And, you know, I was sort of interested when the public members would contribute things like they were not super interested in general in things like fewer days on dialysis. You know, saying that's not an important patient-centered outcome, at least from their perspective. You know, they were concerned about whether you survive the ICU, whether you go home, what your functional status is, but things that we often think about avoidance of dialysis or fewer days on dialysis, and that they were like, yeah, that doesn't really matter that much to me as the patient. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it, it another great example of why having stakeholders like patients in the discussion is so important because it might redirect us to what really matters. Exactly. The other question regarding additional therapies that I, I, I want to hear from is the vitamin C recommendation. Vitamin C, obviously, with sepsis and also with COVID, a lot of noise. There's been some studies now. Where, where does the guideline stand on this today? Yeah, so this was a new question. We hadn't asked this question in previous um, uh, revisions of the guidelines. We had a new PICO question, and we um, issued a suggestion um, against using vitamin C, uh, a weak recommendation based on low quality of evidence um, from that. Notably, um, it does not include um, data from the recently published Victus trial, um, because that was after the censoring date. Um, for this study, um, for the guidelines rather. But again, it was sort of um, based on looking at multiple factors in multiple outcomes, mortality, nuanced organ dysfunction. And so the overall size of any desirable effect in these seven studies that we looked at in terms of, of the use of IV vitamin C, there really wasn't any convincing signal of benefit. Um, the, the estimates of potential harm were widely variable from that. But again, probably no significant, at, at least in the literature we have so far, significant evidence of harm. But the absence of benefit itself led us to a suggestion against the use of vitamin C. Um, again, low quality of evidence, so potential you know, future work could guide that recommendation further. But where we are now is a weak recommendation um, against its use. And finally, I wanted to kind of 
start wrapping up the clinical discussion with a new area uh, that really, I think, not only in sepsis, but in critical illness in general, and even in COVID-19 has become very, very evident to be of great importance for our patients and for ultimately what matters to them. And that is that that last section that talks about goals of care and long-term outcomes. So instead of diving into those recommendations specifically, if you could just give us maybe kind of a, a, a summary or an overview of the direction and the meaning of, of this section. Yeah, the, um, you know, the, the impetus to, you know, change and add and really expand this section was exactly what you said is that I think, you know, as we, as our field moves forward, right, we're, we are increasingly recognizing that, you know, successfully discharging somebody from the ICU or from the hospital is not the end of that illness episode for that patient, right? That the, there are life-changing long-term effects from severe and critical illness, um, sepsis being one of them, but other, obviously COVID, other, um, uh, any other critical illness syndrome. From that, and we wanted to start incorporating that into the guidelines of thinking beyond just short-term mortality as the endpoint for guidelines recommendations, but thinking about long-term functional outcomes for patients. From that, and so we asked a multitude of questions in this vein, right, around how what we do in the hospital impacts long-term outcomes for patients who survive sepsis. You know, whether looking at a wide-ranging thing, right, from structured handoff processes in the hospital to discharge planning to patient or family education about sepsis to post-ICU clinics or post-sepsis peer support groups um, from that. And the bulk of the recommendations are, you know, based on, you know, pretty low quality of evidence at this point in time, low to very low quality of evidence. There's a, several that we found we couldn't issue a recommendation because the evidence base just wasn't there, despite, you know, the entire panel and the public members thinking these are really important questions that we need to know the answers to. So I really look at this section as, you know, really groundbreaking for future directions, for what we need to think about beyond short-term mortality um, and what we need to know um, and what patients need us to help guide them about is what does, what do long-term outcomes look like and how do we um, impact that based on what we do in the hospital? Um, from that. So I look at it really as a research agenda, agenda setting section that says, boy, we have a lot of work left to do in this session because there's the quality of evidence that we have in that right now is growing, but it's still pretty, um, it's still pretty sparse. Yeah, and I think that this whole area is something that obviously we're, we're learning a lot and that has a, a lot of opportunity for research, but also for improving the clinical care we provide. But I, I almost like when I think about this feel that Critical illness for our patients is a marathon, and in the ICU, we're high-fiving them when they finish the, the first 5K, right? Like the first exactly. three miles, and we kind yep, of forget that's the That's a great rest. analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, Laura, I really appreciate. I mean, uh, you sharing your expertise, and more importantly, appreciate the effort that goes into these 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 uh, these guidelines and the work that you've done also with the NIH COVID-19 guidelines. I think I've been such a source of, uh, of, of reliable, good information for many, many clinicians. And we could talk about this for hours, but like we said, we, we arbitrarily chose a handful of recommendations that we thought would be good to, to start uh, or pique the interest of our, of our audience so they can go and dive a little bit deeper in the guidelines, which will be attached to the show notes. But uh, we would like to finish the, the, this episode with some questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Sure, let's do it. So the first question relates to book and is, is there a book that has influenced you significantly or that a book that you have gifted very frequently to other people? Yeah, there's so many great books I've read, right? And, and books that make you think, books that make you reflect, books that, you know, change your viewpoint on things. But I, you know, if I've had to pinpoint one book that says this has really changed how I approach life, that's really hard for me to do from that. So I'm going to actually go with the second part of the question, I think, and talk a little bit about books that I've gifted to people. And um, there's a book that I've given to 
um, several um, young girls um, in you know family and, and friends from that and because I find it um, uh, I think really potentially inspiring um, particularly for young girls to read and so it's it's called goodnight stories for rebel girls um, and it's it's a hundred sort of page long stories about groundbreaking women um, and what they've done um, from that from you know Amelia Earhart to Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, to Harriet Tubman that you know so they're very short little vignettes they're, it's probably you know it's good for people sort of um, you know, early on in their reading careers from that, but I find it a great sort of, of inspiration to uh, our hopefully future leaders. I love it. And I will definitely reference that in the show notes. And I think that for 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 those, I mean, who are parents of girls or colleagues of girls, obviously learning about these stories and sharing these and becoming better allies in the workplace is going to be very important as we, as we really move forward to not only... In, in increasing diversity in our roles, but also being more inclusive in what we do at all levels. So I definitely will. I have not read that book, but having a daughter and, and young nieces will definitely look into it. Uh, I hope they enjoy it. The second, the second question relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe, or at least don't act as they believe it's true. I don't, I don't know if, if most people don't believe this or not, but in this, you know, take this as a little bit tongue in cheek um, from it, but I've, I've been finding myself recently um, thinking of um, something called Hanlon's razor. Um, so I don't know if, if you know what Hanlon's razor is, um, but it was apparently a statement um, submitted to a joke book that then has sort of entered the the public the wider lexicon and and it usually gets paraphrased something along the lines of never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity or incompetence um, and and so I've been finding myself thinking about this you know and I think probably as you know many of us have been you know deeply deeply affected by the pandemic from that and I, I find myself that even both personally, but also with amongst friends, peers, colleagues, um, that I think many of us are quicker to jump to a conclusion that something has ill intent behind it rather than giving people grace um, around whatever it may be. Um, so again, that statement's meant to be a little bit tongue in cheek, but it kind of reminds me of give people grace and don't don't assume bad intent. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned it because I actually did not know about this till recently, but reading a book on mental models, they were talking about Oakham's Racer, which is very, very well known, but they also mm -hmm. mentioned Hanlam's Racer and I was reading about it. And exactly what, what came to mind is a statement that I've shared with multiple colleagues when they've complained to me about difficult families with COVID-19 patients, especially in this last wave here in Texas. And what I always remind them is that the families are victims. They're not doing it on purpose. It, they really believe that perhaps drug A or drug B or this or that is gonna save their loved one. And uh, it, that's why they're, they're fighting for that, but they don't do it with ill intention or malice. They're just trying to, uh, they're misinformed, right? I mean, and they're just trying to do what's best for the family members. So I think it, it definitely, like you said, tongue in cheek, but very true. Yeah, and it just reminds me that to to be more mindful about offering people grace. That this yeah. has been an amazingly taxing time for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Um, we can't be kind enough to each other. I think. Yeah. And uh, and that that's one way of of kindness. Really, we always assume the worst of people, and uh, like you said. Ignorance or stupidity is a much more likely <laughs> reason or explanation <laughs> than actually ill intent or malice. Yeah, absolutely. And and finally, we just want to close with a, what would you want every intensivist that's listening to us to know? Could be a quote or a fact or just a thought. Yeah, that's a hard one. The one the one statement that I find myself referencing quite a bit. Um, you know, whenever I'm on service in the ICU and um, is a saying that I'm going to paraphrase that I learned from one of my attendings at the University of Washington when I was a fellow. So I remember um, David Pearson, if anybody listening knows, knows him, 
um, used to say um, a statement that I'm going to try not to butcher, but I think has really good roots, which is, you know, part of the art of medicine is knowing when to not just stand there, do something, and when to not just do something, stand there. And I find myself using that, you know, amongst my ICU team as, as a reminder of, you know, sometimes you just need to step back and not lose your cool um, and know when you need to act immediately and when you just need to stand there and let things kind of settle a little bit. Absolutely. And I think uh, that's a perfect place to stop. Laura, again, thank you for your generosity with your time and sharing your expertise. I look forward to having you back on the podcast to talk about sepsis or other topics and also look forward to seeing you in person soon. I mean, it's been obviously a couple of years that we haven't uh, had a chance to, to meet with our colleagues. So hopefully that will come soon in, in a conference next year. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks so much for the invitation. It was really fun to do this. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.